we've all got that voice in our head that tells us we can't do stuff. But I think that some people are just better at maybe not listening to it. And by sitting down with those people, asking them questions, and then recording it and blasting it out on the internet, it helps, maybe. I can help other people like me get out of our own way. Hey guys, welcome back to Closure Optional. My guests this week are my parents. They are, besides the creators of me and my brother, visual artists. And they probably, I guess, kind of describe themselves as conceptual artists because they like to use the medium of art to express an idea or a concept rather than sort of making something that looks nice on a wall. Though many of my dad's paintings do also look nice on a wall. Um, but before I get into that conversation, uh, I just have a couple news items that um, might you might find of interest. I don't know. First one, and completely irrelevant but fun anyway, um, I got hit by a car yesterday on my bicycle, so that's nice. I'm fine. Everything's okay. My bicycle's not okay, and my telephone's not okay, because both of those two things sort of exploded when a car ran them over, but... The guy was very nice and stopped and um, is helping me fix all of those things. And what he couldn't fix with my body, we we're going to be just fine. Nothing more damaging than anything I've ever had in a Muay Thai fight, so I'm okay. But second order of business, and also completely unrelated to the first order of business, was that while I was back in the U.S. and met my brother's new girlfriend, who's lovely, she does a thing where she challenges herself to go without something for a month at a time and she was very cute about it she likes to make them rhyme and I can't remember any of the rhymes right now but like you know July rhymes with uh, who knows but so you go without something for that course of that month so the last month when she was in July she said no plastic for the month of July and she found it really really hard to do and I thought this was a really cool idea. So I've decided to um, copy her, jump on the bandwagon, and start a new challenge for myself. So from the 1st of August, this very August coming up, which is the day that this podcast will be released, in fact, I am going to eliminate sugar from my diet for the month of August. If anybody else would like to join me, my flatmate unfortunately has to do this with me because she's got no choice and it's fun. And if I just figured if I said it out loud on the podcast and put it out there into the world, if anyone else wanted to do it too, you could. And also I have to, it keeps me accountable for actually doing the things that I said I'm going to do. So for this month, it is a sugar-free August, like a shoggy frogist, shoggery frogist, sugar-free August. I'll keep you posted each week as to how my progress is going and if anybody else wants to join it on, let us know. I'll try and make a little page for it or something. I don't really know. I haven't really thought this all the way through. And that's enough of me rambling. It's um, This is a really, really fun conversation. My mom and dad are very smart people. And especially for anybody that knows me in Australia for the 11 years that I've been living here, um, it might be of interest to you to understand the person that I am because of the people that made me. We talk a lot about art, a lot about the ideas behind art, uh, some of the, a little bit of art history, and um, a little bit on how to maintain a sort of 
healthy relationship with somebody that you are stuck with for 40 years. Monogamy has always been a confusing thing for me because I don't really understand how one person can satisfy all of your needs and desires and that we tend to make this kind of claim and ownership over the other person and it, none of it seems right to me. But at the same time, I really can't imagine gangbanging 50 people and watching my boyfriend have sex with a, anyone. So anyway... Hope you get some good ideas out of this. Hope you enjoy the conversation. And by all means, if you'd like to jump on to Shoggy Frogist, do it. I'll check in next week. Hi, guys. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you for inviting us. <laughs> Hello. Thanks for having me at your home. It's your home away from home. It is. It's so nice to be back. But I, I was just saying before um, yesterday how I felt intimidated by Americans, and I can't tell what it is. I was trying to explain it to my friend when we went out to that show the other night that I, I feel smaller in America because Americans have like this inherent confidence about being the best country in the world. No, I think it's because we're your parents. And when I think of you, when I have dreams about you, you have a little bob of brown hair. <laughs> Do you think, so you think that I have naturally no confidence when I'm here because I feel like I'm with my parents? Yeah. Yeah, that I feel. Uh, that you're a child. I did. I had a realization last night when we were riding our bikes home from the um, restaurant, and I was following Dad the whole time. Even though I knew the route because that's where I ride to the gym and back, I was following Dad. And nervous also because I was too stoned to be riding a bike. But I um, then at one point I passed you because mm -hmm. you slowed down for that pedestrian. Right. And then all of a sudden I was in charge. And I had this a realization that I've been waiting for you guys for everything the whole time I've been here. Because I, I haven't had a lot of money to spend. So I'm just always kind of waiting, waiting, waiting. And I kind of I immediately fell back into that role of being a little kid again. And then as I was leading us home, I was like in charge all of a sudden. I got this amazing realization that I'm capable. I am a capable human being. Well, kind of. Oh, yeah. I had a dream last night that I was back in school again and probably being here. But I was riding around with the green backpack that I've gotten from Melina. So, and I had a pet cat and a rat in the backpack? Inside the backpack that I'd forgotten about. So it was Monday morning and I went to school and I was late and I threw it in the, my locker and then closed my locker and then realized that there was a cat and a rat that I'd forgotten about all weekend that I had kept trapped in a bag. And then I couldn't figure out how to open the locker again. I opened the locker and saw that they were in there and I was like, well, I have to leave you here for all day today. You guys are going to have to just be in here dying. <laughs> and what the hell does that mean? <laughs> And then I couldn't go back and find the locker after it was over. I made a decision after I left them that it wasn't fair to leave them all day and it was better to miss school and take the rat and cat back home than it was Thank to stay home. with them. And then I couldn't open the locker again because I couldn't find it. And I was like insanely agitated and furious and scared. So you made basically the wrong decision. Yes. To, to quit school. And yet... No, I made the wrong decision to go to school. The right decision was to not leave these animals trapped in a locker and actually take them home. But you couldn't do it. 
you couldn't accomplish that. You couldn't open the locker. Mm -hmm. Really, what you should have done is just gone to school because that was the decision you did, you'd, you'd made. Yeah, but it was gonna. It was going to become worse, though. Well, yeah, you, you have to live with your decision. What well, was going to become worse? Well, they were going to be stuck in that locker, and I realized that they hadn't eaten all weekend because I hadn't fed them and I kept them trapped in. A you'd backpack. already blown them off. This was already well, a what decision. What if they died? So what? You'd already, <laughs> you'd, you'd already, they, so well, because you, just a rat. It's a rat yeah. cat, and you'd already done the worst that you'd already treated him badly the whole weekend. Just because you treated someone badly for a little while doesn't mean you should continue to treat them badly when you have a change. You've, of, you've change given them brain damage. Well, you could, you could have just given them to social services and <laughs> gone to school. Accepted that I was a terrible parent. Right. right. Yeah. And then you weren't able to open the locker anyway. So basically, this was a goal that you never should have been in involved in. The whole bad decision was taking your rat and your cat with you in that backpack. Yeah, how they got there in the first place. That was decision question. one that was bad. But by the time you tortured them all weekend, <laughs> probably given them brain damage, they never were going to recover. The worry about them the day in the locker was meaningless. You'd already beaten that horse to death. Well, I hadn't quite. They were still well. alive. How do you know? What was her brain function? <laughs> it's hard to tell if you have caused brain damage to a rat or a cat because I don't really know what normal brain. Are they going to love like. you anymore after this? That's why you have. Well, a that was the other question too. I was worried about is that there. I did find the rat because it happened to be outside of the locker at some point. The cat was still trapped in there, and the rat. I gave it a little bit of apple that I found on the ground. And then it ate the apple, and then it tried to run away from me. And then I grabbed it and wouldn't let it escape. And it really wanted to get away from me. But Because you're a terrible parent. And uh -huh. this was a goal you should have abandoned long ago. The, the it's whole... hard to be a parent, though. Well, it, it, you're, you're not a parent. You're not a parent. <laughs> okay. Right. It was a rat. That was your pet. You, if you could leave a pet all weekend like that, you obviously don't care enough about it. Yeah. And you have to, uh, the main lesson probably is if you're going to have a goal, if you're going to have a responsibility that you've chosen, don't leave it all weekend. Yeah. And oh, don't no, forget it's in your backpack. When I, I saw that squirrel this morning, it reminded me of the rat, and I felt immediately guilty again. Those squirrels are not native. <laughs> they need to go, they need to stop <laughs> eating the peaches off our tree. <laughs> you're justifying the murder of an animal. They can have, I, um, they they can have the peaches, that's fine. It's the tomatoes that we care about. That's when we're going to really lay it down the hammer. <laughs> <laughs> but they are not native and they don't have enough predators here. It is a problem. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I don't like to kill them. I nudge my partner to do it. <laughs> Your father. Do you think that, yes? I, I cause him to be the murderer. <laughs> no. How does it feel to murder an animal like that? Well, yeah, it's terrible. But it's either them or the tomatoes. <laughs> well, and if we're living on tomatoes... Yeah, but you're not. Well, we are, and we shouldn't waste them just because these creatures waste have invaded our, sp our, our space. They need to know well, that this is... Well, have you considered that perhaps you invaded their space? No, no, no. They are non-native. They did not come from here. Neither did you. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I have natural predators. <laughs> they don't. The IRS. Uh, yes. <laughs> Republicans. 
we should, are we on track? <laughs> We're not at all on track. You um, can cut all this out. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Well, the reason why I wanted to talk to you guys is because you guys raised me, and then I moved away for 11 years, and I come back every year or so to see you. And you're also the most well-known artist that I know. <laughs> These are two interesting dynamics. You don't know very many artists. No, I don't know very many artists. But I don't know very many artists that are as talented as my father that don't get seen very often. Yeah, and I'm sure there are a lot of people like them. And a lot of it, I think, is the his effort to be seen, but also it takes a lot to see somebody's work. You know, you can read a book or a poem or watch TV or whatever, and there's so many things we just blow up, we don't have time for them. Mm -hmm. The number of things we actually choose to give attention to is small. But, and Dad has a similar, well, you have a similar issue to the one that I have, and I don't know if I've inherited it from you, but this idea that it's not, you want to be found out rather than push your artwork onto other people. You want someone to come to you and say, I want your things. I mean, I'm happy to, I don't know. You're happy to sell your work? Like, give yeah. us an example of when you have. <laughs> <laughs> think back I mean, over the last 40 years. I don't know, I mean, selling stuff's fine, I guess. Um, well, what's the purpose of creating art? Yeah, it doesn't... I mean, except that I need to eat stuff. I don't really care about selling stuff. You pretty much need to make enough money to be able to keep making art without having to pay... Have to, having to do something else that's unrelated to pay for your life. Why do you do it? Why do you make art? I don't know. I, you know... It is... You have said in the past it's to clearly communicate an idea. Yeah, at least to communicate to me a problem, you know, a problem solving. Like to see you know? if you, if you, you kind of want to see if you can do something. You have an idea and you want to see if you can get it out. Yeah, if I can make it work mm. in the piece. And the weird thing is, is I kind of evolved into this thing where I think that no, no single piece is, is telling enough of the story that it's, that it works by itself. Yeah. That in that to really understand the kind of stuff I'm working on, you, you need to look at a few pieces or pieces in context. And so context it, in relation to time or in relation to each other? Well, both, really. Yeah, I guess it's all, I mean it's all the same. Yeah, you know, if you, see you only all make one piece at a time, so it takes time to make them and then you know, then what you're looking at is, Oh, Something I guess from the past. Sorry, what I mean is in relation to like our social time. Like, are you making social statements relative to the time that you're creating the artwork in, and that it gives your artwork different meaning depending on the time that it was created in? You know, like what we've been talking about with abstract right. paintings, that they're only really relevant at the time that they were something different than what people had been previously well, creating because it was a statement. And all, I guess all artwork has that stamp of its time yeah. to a degree, the, the time it's made, but I definitely try to eliminate anything. Um, I mean, not completely, but, but eliminate, 
you know, politics or anything of our time that way from our art. Why? And it just doesn't really interest me. That's not the kind of problems I want to solve. And I don't think art solves those kind of problems. I mean, to me, art's more of a, it's a relationship between the visual experience and the being in the presence of something. Yeah, yeah. So do you think that it diminishes art by taking a photograph of it rather than being with it? Well, I do think, I mean, it is an odd thing that here, you know, probably, I don't know what percentage um, people, you know, experience the world in a little three-inch diagonal screen. Yeah, man. And, you know, they look at a lot of artwork and people will, you know, stick pictures of, of art that people see on their phone and um, people order stuff from their computer and so maybe uh, on a desktop you have 20 inches to see the world. Mm-hmm. But um, it's not the same as being in the presence of something. Mm. Yeah, it's not at all the same. But it is, I mean, there's something to be said for it, and I talk about this a lot, because the, like, my ability to communicate to up to 200 people at a time, you know, or up to 6,000 people at a time, depending on how many people would ever listen to this podcast, let's say, my ability to do that is enhanced by the internet and the fact that people are on their phones all the time, they're always needing content, they're always needing information. But at the same time, to get a valid and authentic and genuine conversation with other people and communicate with them, it's really hard when you've got recording things and there's pressure and people know that things are going to be on the internet forever or there's this need for it to be sold. You know, there's a need for it to have followers, to have likes, to have, and so all of a sudden there's this really gross social marketplace that everything has to participate in. But I would never be able to talk to 200 people if I didn't have that. Right, and you also, right. it's what the people are their um, interaction with your work, too. Um, you could do this podcast, and somebody could put it on while they're working, which I often do, and blah, 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 blah. Somebody's talking to my ear, and I've gotten really nothing from what, you know, uh, the podcast on the philosophy of Kant yeah, has so told it's... me. I bar- basically know how to say Kant's name correctly. <laughs> well, and that's one step in the right direction. But, yeah, so it's, it's, it is an alternate version of the immediate experience like nobody's actually going to be able to experience this what we're doing right now but they can experience through it a different form in the context that they're also living a life it's like multitasking they're doing two things at once but with art uh, I guess the reason why this came into my head is that you have the ability now through the internet through taking photographs of art that people can see a painting that they'd never be able to get to Someone in Algeria, is, it may never ever be able to get to the Louvre to see the Mona Lisa, but they might be able to experience it because somebody's taken a photo of it and brought it back to them. Well, right? certainly they can experience a photo of it. But you would argue that they're not experiencing it. Yeah, I think the it part's different, but... Mm, yeah, I agree. But it doesn't mean that the other experience isn't necessary. I mean, the only way that we can see... Um, you know, a war zone destroyed. or something like that without entering a war zone is through um, you know, electronic media one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And well, and it gives you a skewed perspective of the thing itself because um, they were talking about this. I think it was the dumb book. Um, they were talking about the idea of the, that the more people that are dead, the less we care because it becomes too much of an abstraction. 
And so when you see these kind of images constantly all the time, there is some, some argument to say that you're not actually getting to experience what that really feels like. You're becoming accustomed to seeing images like that. So it right. becomes more of an abstraction to you. You know, the we made this book last summer. Um, we made a series of books, and they were a collection of drawings that Dad did. So they were, and it was a pretty good, it was a big-sized book, like 18 inches um, horizontally and 12, you know, the, the height of it. And so you got this whole series of drawings, so they related one to the next to the next, and you got to hold the book in your hand, so you became intimate with it. You got the series, you know, seeing them in relation to one another. And then we talked about the work, and I transcribed that mm. in the book. Oh, cool. Yeah, and then we also said where we were and, we, and what we were going to see, and saw an exhibition at a museum, and then finished. You were traveling? We were traveling. We were in, um, we started in Ireland, and then we went to France and England, and we dropped the first one in the uh, National Gallery in Dublin. After sitting there with a book on my lap, writing what we were seeing, closed the book, we went to the bookstore, and just slid it into the shelves. <laughs> That's so cool. And then, so it's now at the Natural Gal National Gallery of Ireland. No, we have uh, several books out there. One at the Pompidou Center in in Paris. Uh, one at the Royal um, Academy of Art in London, and one at the Tate. Tate Tate Britain, and one at the Edinburgh National Gallery. But the one in the Irish National Galleries was picked up by a guy who. Prince, he's a publisher that prints journals. Ah. Yeah, and he yeah, and the first page of the book says, this book does not belong to the inventory here. You're welcome to take it. <laughs> it's free. Just walk out with it. Cool. And I did. It was great. He and his wife, his wife pointed out to him, he said, she said, here, look. Look, this is just exactly the kind of book you like. <laughs> wow. And, but only one of the five has been... That we know of. Has so where did you put up. your contact details? In the in the book, like just it looks like a normal book, like yeah, where the okay. publisher, published by, yeah, okay. you know, all that stuff. Yeah, we did print the first section that says this, but it's handwritten that it says it was called Book Drop, the project. Book Drop yeah. slash Dublin was the first one, and it's handwritten Dublin. Oh, that's because so we cool. didn't know where we'd drop them. Yeah, and and there's no like printed book cover on it. It's just a cloth book that we you know we made the yeah, books. Yeah, yeah, you made the book. Oh wow! And then Dad drew a stick on the outside, on the spine, on the spine to be attractive. <laughs> yeah, some gold ink. Yeah, that was good. That's such a cool project. Oh my God! And the guy was so great. He was like the perfect person that picked up the book. He and his wife, you know kind of, you know, talk about stuff like this together like we do. And so they were just both so excited to get to to get this book. And are they original drawings? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, that is Each so Each book has cool. yeah, the original drawings in it. Plus I did some drawings on the trip, filled yeah. up some other blank pages of the book. And oh, the, um, cool. What was I going to say? That, well, so these books, either people w weren't able to figure out that they could take them, they could have ended up like in the bargain bin at, at these places and they would have a sticker on them that says, you know, like a pound or something. Yeah. If they're or just trying to get rid of them. Or somebody's, somebody took them but hasn't contacted us. 
Or the, do you think the museum themselves would have been annoyed about you putting them in their gift shop and just took them off the shelf? Sure, and throwing them in the trash. I mean, that's, that's a potential. Mm. Oh, imagine, the, imagine how big of an asshole you'd have to be to do something like that, though. Well, it's their loss. Yeah, that's true. But then, um, We've already given it, up, given it away. That's that, um, but the whole creepy world of the commercial art world is, is a disgusting place. Like that, that movie that we've been, we're talking about, the documentary Exit Through the Gift Shop. And so it's, it, that is exactly the way art feels to me. It's hard to tell what makes art good art because in the past it was because it was created by a white man. In, in the current it was possibly because it's created by somebody who isn't a white man. What is art? Well, it's something that does this thing that we've talked about a lot, that it, it makes you think. It, it has an it, it has an, uh, oh, I get it, oh, that's made me think of this, that's um, renewed and opened my mind to new ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, in the postmodern idea that anything can be art, could be art, a lot, and things can be very nice paintings. that. Impressionist painting that we saw that somebody made in 1993 is a lovely impressionist painting, but it isn't moving us as a society. It isn't adding new meaning, opening us up, like reading a Milan Kundera book, mm -hmm. because it's already been done. It's it's not it's not uh, something that is is going to strike this chord of what we need in in our society right now. Yeah, what do you think it is, Dad? Well, I think just the, the, the kind of moment between you and an object or you and a performer or you and a sound, um, it's, that, it's that little moment of, you know, I guess sort of a connection that sounds kind of trite, but just that kind of that experience, which is why I've, I think, you know, being in the presence of something is interesting like even if you're talking about a, a ex abstract expressionist painting done in 1993, um, being in front of it is still can be a valid experience if if that's all you got. You know, if that's if you don't have the chance. You know, if that's the only um, piece you get to experience. To get to experience that is a fine thing. But there's a big difference between experiencing an abstract painting that was created in 1971 versus one that was created in 1993. Or 1941. Yeah, possi possibly. And, but then that also has to do, you know, with, with how successful it was the, pa the, you know, the painting originally. I mean, because there's, you know, plenty, I would guess, of, you know, crap abstract expressionist paintings that are floating around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's and a lot of crap that Picasso sold for a lot of money. Yeah. So do you think, I mean, you're talking about success. You're looking at it from the point of view as an artist. I think it's hard for you to think about what is art um, because you're always trying to solve the problem of each piece. So it's a practical question for you most of the time you're making art. Yeah, is this thing working? Is, was this decision correct or do I have to start over again? Can you look back on work you've done and say, I think this was really art, this was meaningful, this was the best stuff I've done? Mm. 
you know, like, do you like moving no, on? And my relationship with it changes a lot. Yeah, me too. I know you mean. Because I do, you know, I'll go through drawings from last year or the year before, you know, looking through stuff, and I'll see something and go, oh, I forgot I even did that. that you know, because at the time, you know, usually when I, I'm starting on something, you know, whether it's a drawing or a sculpture, I start on it, and I have an idea what I'm, what I'm going to do, where eventually I'm going to get with this, and then I go along that path, and it gets to the end, or towards the end, and it either is or is not close to what I started to do. You know, sometimes it's better than what I started to do. And mm. Sometimes it's not successful. But anyway, so if I'm working on something, by the time I get to the point where I've, I've locked in, I, I have to go with this, I made the decision, this is the finish, this is the texture, this is the material, this is whatever I'm doing, then you just have to finish it. Because mm. if you don't finish it, you, don't, you haven't really learned what, what the potential of this piece is. So go ahead and finish it. And then I'm sick of it by then. I can't tell if it's any good or not. I've just, I've done it. I've made, you know, all the little decisions that got to where I'm at. So I put it away and then, you know, and then you I'll rediscover it later. But it is a finished piece and then it's, it, it's uh, what it has to offer is then available for everybody. It's... It's, but it's only available for everybody if it gets seen. That's the trouble, is that there's so much work that gets made that goes back into your sketchbook, back into my sketchbook, back into anywhere that nobody ever sees. So what are you communicating? I agree that it's a process of unfolding and creating a solution to the, the piece itself. So your relationship to making the drawing is bigger than the drawing's relationship to the greater the world at large. But... The combination of those two things, you having solved the problem, making it through that, and then and then solving the other problem of getting it out into the world, that's what gives your art, I guess, a, a greater sense of meaning well, than just creating anybody yourself. that gets to see it, and now when I'm not talking about numbers, but he gets to see it later, I get to see it, and we get to have an experience of this work. You know, and maybe it'd be nice for a lot of other people to get that experience too, but right now at least we're getting it. You've seen a lot of these things. The guy that got that book mm -hmm. in Dublin gets to have, look at this anytime he wants to and, and have that experience. And that, that seeing the work, reading the poem, reading the book, is an experience of its own of, of kind of creativity. Yeah. Well, do you think that the of the six or seven books that you left places, does the book that was found in Dublin have more meaning now because it was found? Or are they all doing their jobs effectively? Well, we don't know. I mean, we just released them. I mean, you don't know that. I mean, even if you have a show or you make a public sculpture and you set it up, you know, you don't know once you've released it like that it's it's just there yeah and it's not your problem anymore I guess yeah and do you think that's a healthy attitude to have towards art that once it's done you have to let it go like a memory more or less it can help guide yeah, you yeah yeah and it's fine it doesn't bother me to let stuff go like the book thing was really fun I mean mm -hmm. you know and and you know the books were nice and we put them together really well I mean they're really cool but um, we just let them go and, you know, it wasn't a big deal to let him go. In fact, we were more nervous, 
you know, sneaking around in the bookshops, just like, well, let's see, I guess they probably got us on film here. We'll just stick this in the shelf and walk out of here. So, Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny to be nervous that you're leaving a gift? And that's a priceless <laughs> gift. I mean, that thing would be worth a ton of money, depending on how many drawings you've got in there. I mean, that's a treasure. That's a gem for someone to find. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was our attitude, but then possibly it's just in a landfill. You know, it could yeah. it could be anywhere. And we thought about the idea of chipping the things so you could like track <laughs> them where they go and stuff like that. But then we thought, no, we don't want to do that because it's because then it's weird that you're putting a tracking device into a store into this public space, and then you know let you know. So yeah, it's kind of creepy. Like you'd go, you'd get a tracking sticker and just walk into any store and just stick it on an appliance, stick it on stuff. And yeah. so you could sort of randomly track things around the world. <laughs> but that wasn't what this piece was about. It was about somebody discovering it and somebody wanting to communicate with us. Well, and wanting, so, wanting, so far, one person in the world has. has so yeah. that's good. And maybe somebody else has seen it, attracted by its spine and touched it. And when you touch it, it's just a really great sensation because it's a handmade book. Mm. And... Uh, maybe somebody got it that was, a, you know, a student on their, you know, some field trip from school, and it's the only real art, original drawing thing they've ever seen in their life. Did you guys put it in any specific region in the bookstore, or did you kind of just plant it wherever you could find it? No, we kind of put it in where they had, like, individual books of artists. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I was just wondering, you know, like if you put it in a section of the bookstore that no one ever cares about going to, then it's likely just still sitting there because no one cares. But we but put it, yeah. we put it in, in museum, art museum bookstores to predispose the guest to wanting a book on art. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we... Yeah, because we could have. I mean, another idea was to do something like this and you sort of randomly leave them in doctor's offices and <laughs> in places like that, just like it's a fake magazine that you lay down and, yeah. then, and then it's there. But Which would be a whole different project. Then we'd chip it. <laughs> then <laughs> we'd chip, chip it. <laughs> do you think... Um, so overall, the project is successful, irrespective of whether somebody sees it or not. And almost because of the fact that you don't know if someone will see it or not, it made it more successful. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that that... Because for, for us, the success of it was just getting the thing to the finished state that it was in so that it looked like a real thing. It was a beautiful thing that you'd want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, creating that kind of desire in it and then and the, the content was the content any good you know he labored over the drawings and then you know this wasn't just a journal like and then we had bre eggs for breakfast and it was um you know this, particularly the one in dublin was the, was a diary of us meeting the hundred people with my last name and this whole experience of the, of being in ireland for the first time in our lives and uh, you know it was it wasn't flippant journal writing. It was, yeah. I mean, I wanted to even have more of a formula so I wouldn't stray and just blah, blah, blahing about myself and what we were doing. Yeah. I wanted to, you know, I almost wanted to get the, you know, whatever the conceit was that Lawrence Stern did when he wrote The Travels in Italy and France. You know, I wanted some conceit like that that I would stick to and not 
go off of. I mean, I didn't do it that well, but that particular journal was really good. Did you, did you, you read most mm-hmm. of that? Yeah, well, it's a tough thing. I mean, there's so much self involved in, in communication and in expression, especially you have to have enough confidence to try and express yourself that there can be, you're always a danger of kind of self-indulgent expression. I, th- I uh, Oh, sure, yeah, absolutely. You know, that's why I was <laughs> telling you about the Ulipo folks. They basically set up a construct, and then they stick to the construct to take their ego out of it. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we're constantly thinking of ways to get our own ego out of the thing, yeah. which somewhat makes you at a loss to then get rid of it, you know, to, to market it. Um, hey, come buy this thing of mine. You know, oh, but, no, it's gross. And it immediately feels gross, too, when somebody starts selling you themselves. So. Do you feel like that's but, a part of your hesitation to sell your artwork? Um, yeah, a little bit of that. I mean, certainly, I, I don't... I mean, there's no reason that to, to buy something because it's attached to me. Hmm. Um, you know, because the thing is the thing. You know, once I, once I, I finished it, I think it... It just needs to sit there. Um, um, yeah, and like our success, she asked about this, did we feel the thing was a success? And it's a success because we did it as well as we could do it. We mm-hmm. really analyzed this marketing, you know, the marketing idea of... We, giving it away. Of giving it away. So, um, you know, how do we state this? How do we write this first section that went in every book uh, that this is... a this is a free gift. We are, we're, you know, kind of showing a, a different system of, of trade. Mm. And we're doing it for you, people that might like to have a book of original art, something that is intimate, and it isn't a photograph of a piece of art, it is the art itself. Mm-hmm. And, and then th- it's a discussion of the art. So we the first section was... Stuart and I talking about these drawings that are in this book. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, you know, um, an, an offering of education. You know, something that somebody... Or insight. I mean, insight, yeah, not yeah. necessarily education. Yeah, man. Well, this is why I love reading, like why I was so excited to find that Kundera book on writing, because you s- see somebody whose artwork you love. I, I cannot get enough of his writing. I think it's he's just an amazing writer. And then to find out that he has written a book of insights about how his process and how he got that done and how he writes the way he writes. It doesn't make it... And, and I get what you're saying, Dad, that it isn't about you being attached to the art, that it makes no difference. But it does in a way... Like, if I can develop a relationship to the artist that's created something that may, may, had meaning for me... Because like, you just you have certain things that really resonate with you and things that don't. It doesn't mean that everything that that artist creates is going to resonate with you, but for the most part, you tend to understand what they're trying to do better than certain other artists. And to be able to have the insight on their process and what they meant to do by that, I think it really adds... It just makes you develop a totally different relationship to the piece of work. It's no longer just your experience. It's like you're actually getting to have a conversation with them about what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, no, I... You know, and I... uh, Yeah, I... Uh, except that that's fine but i guess i'm just talking about separating the for the marketing idea oh yeah yeah that that you know i don't know that you know it's kind of the name branding oh yeah well right and and this insight wasn't um 
so much uh, a picture of Stuart and that he's left-handed, which he isn't, um, or... Or like a list of things he's done before, because that's tends tends to be mm -hmm. here's my credentials. Now take this book. Right. Like yeah. I agree with you. That's a totally different story. Your personal insights, and this is why I love the podcast and the idea of this, and why I wanted to talk to you guys in a recorded way like this, is because it's so hard to capture the real essence of somebody unless you have the time to sit down in a room and really talk ideas out with them. It's it's more universal. Anybody mm -hmm. can relate to it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be a left-handed. Blue-eyed Scotsman, who's not left-handed. A white male. Right. <laughs> right. It, it's not about identity artwork. You can be black, you can be green, you can be from Mars and still possibly get it if they've gone, come to Earth and go, wow, these sticks on Earth are the coolest thing. And there's this artist I find that draws sticks all the time. <laughs> he loves sticks. Oh, what are you doing? Oh, well, occasional the Martian. Um... Yeah, well, and what is it that that alien would be seeing in the artwork? That's always the question. And this is a question that Dad and I were talking about when we were at the um, Clifford Still Museum, was that how do you know if something works or not? And how do you have the confidence as an artist to decide this works and that doesn't? How did you develop that? Well, I think it's a just... A Experiential, you just have to do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. You know, and Clifford still used to do multiples. He'd do something, and then he'd right. get to the point where he thought, "Oh, you know, I should, you know, I'm going to do this again and change this and see, you know." So he was teaching himself, mm -hmm. you know, in the process of doing the work. So it, yeah, I mean, there's a there's that's a cool idea too. Is that the whole every time you create a piece of artwork, you're watching somebody learn something. When you look at a painting, you're watching someone learn about themselves and about their attempt to make something. Really, like, would you say if I looked at yeah. your drawings, I'd be watching you discovering things? Yeah, yeah. There'd be the process. And that's kind of what I was saying about how some of my my pieces work good in a series or groups because then there's there's the chance to discover these the little things that are different between them. Yeah, it, how you. But learn. I think everybody's works that way, really. I mean, you know, like the first time we saw the Rothko show, that big Rothko show in Paris, it was, you know, pretty. Yeah, I mean, incredible yeah. emotional impact that seeing these group of paintings. Yeah, and Rothko's had. a good example of somebody that if I mean, if people don't know anything about art, I'm gonna I'll be putting pictures on these posts so people can know what they're what we're talking about, but. Because Rothko is just swatches of color on a big-ass canvas. Yeah. And the typical, you know, average person who doesn't know much about art would have a look at that and go, anyone can do that, why does that matter, why is it important? Mm -hmm. And I tend to agree with them when it, not necessarily Rothko himself, because I understood a little bit more that it was a, he, in relation to his time, was very important, what he was doing. And, and I actually will ask you to explain that a little bit more, but... There is a difference, and what we talked about at the start of this conversation is like there is a big difference between somebody who puts swatches of color on a canvas at a certain point in time for a certain reason with a certain purpose versus somebody who mass produces them at Kmart so people can have swatches of color on their wall. Well, yeah, like right. the end of the 40s, beginning of the 50s, abstract expressionism really starts happening okay. because... Like and as you walk through the Clifford Still Museum, you see his stuff that you can recognize. That's a man. That's a farm. Yeah. That's a farm implement. 
then you get into this next room, which is very late 40s, I think. And there's not, nothing recognizable in it. It's just colors and shapes. And, and that's... Abstract expressionism. Abstract expressionism. Mm -hmm. And this is what Rothko is. He was so a friend of Stills, and so his thing became the rectangle on top of a rectangle on a field. Yeah. And stills are always those more vertical, more, I still see them as more landscape-y. Still came from the West, the Western United States, and I you know, feel a Westerner camaraderie with him. Mm -hmm. Where Rothko, even though he's from P Portland, Oregon, he was immigrated from Russia, and he spent most of his life in New York. So it's that cosmopolitan New York... Um, Eliminate the figure, eliminate anything that you can say, oh, that's a painting of a horse. Mm -hmm. You don't need to say, oh, that's a, that, that's not how you get it. You get it experientially. And this was totally new. Yes. So do you mind kind of explaining a little bit why you think Rothko matters? So we've got a context now of how he came about and why that's important, because it is really important putting that in the time scale. Right. In the same way, I mean, I talk about this with punk music a lot. Like, if you listen to the Ramones now, it's very weak and watered down punk music, quote-unquote. Right. But they, at their time, it was outrageous. It was ridiculous for them to do what they did. And so that's why they matter, in a way. But what do you think? Um, about Rothko? Yeah, about Rothko. Well, I mean, I guess, I, you know, I'd seen Rothko stuff before the Dallas Art Museum had have a Rothko that they own and it, it was often on display in the museum so I was familiar with that and I'd run into Rothko's a few times but when we saw the show in Paris you know there was I don't know how many maybe 60 or 70 paintings in the show and it was chronologically set up and it was you know by the time you got into his large paintings, you know, the Seagram's kind of murals, you know, those, the, the big, big pieces, it was, you know, in this emotional confrontation, you know, it changed my perspective of, mm. of him quite a bit. And also probably got me thinking about the idea of, um, my work being in, you know, looking at it in, groups looking at it in series you know that you can tell a better story you know mm -hmm. and I think that's why curators are important right now yeah maybe even more than um you know commercial gallery directors as far as you know telling a story about some work and showing um you know the importance of the work or the context of the work just by pairing them with different things. Mm. Yeah, so you can watch the development of it over time. What's emotional about Rothko? Why do you say it's emotional? I don't know. It, it's a, totally an experience. It's not something you're going to get from your phone. Yeah. And it's not something you'd get from a book because the, you know, the, the thin layers of paint that he used, you know, creates, I don't know, it just creates this emotional response when you... Mm when you get to see the pieces, you know, to go sit in the Rothko Chapel in Houston or the Seagram's room in, at the Tate or, um, well, you know, to be in the presence of his paintings. And those really work to me because they're groups of paintings. I mean, when you're in the Rothko Chapel, you're on all sides. There's a painting looking at you or you, you can look at. And same with the, at the Tate. So yeah. this, this is an interesting idea that like artwork individually of itself 
like each individual painting is really dependent on its relationship to the things around it. I, maybe because we just consume information too quickly and we're used to this like concept of the Facebook feed that you can put completely unrelated things all together in this line and just scroll through. And one minute I'm reading about weed, the next minute I'm looking at Muay Thai stuff, the next minute I'm looking at what one of my friends did or whatever, you know, it's just this totally r random spattering of information that's being pushed forward towards me. And the weird idea, uh, the weird feeling about it is that as soon as I look at something, I'm already ready for the next thing. Like, I'm already kind of, like, hungrily devouring this list of information without actually properly... Because you feel like you're missing something if you don't go fast enough or something. Right. Well, and, and group shows tend to do that. You know, when you go to a big... Yeah. Um, you know, like, the, a lot of the stuff at Site Santa Fe or places where you have lots of different stuff. You have one piece by each artist or two pieces by each artist. Then you kind of do kind of go get what you can out of this one, jump to the next one, and... Mm. Yeah. You know. well, a lot of but it's more like a feed. It's more like that kind of feed. Yeah. Um, a lot of musicians don't... I've read interviews from them saying that they really hate doing festival shows as opposed to doing one of their gigs. It's good for them to just get out and have people see them, and if people like a few of their songs or they have a particularly good set or whatever, they might have some more fans that might buy an album or go to one of their shows. But it's just this chaotic stream of get on 20 minutes, get off, you know, get on play. Yeah. And then you're playing behind Katy Perry or whatever, you know, the, obviously the musician, the people that are putting on the festival are trying to group you in a way that makes sense, but it's mostly based on popularity, you know, so who goes later on in the day or a certain time of the day, whatever. And yeah, it's a really hard way to get your music authentically heard. Yeah. yeah, it's it just will, a it's, it's really hard bite. It's a little bit. Your, it's hard to think for yourself. Um, you, we have um, all the stuff that's going to carry us along on a stream, and we're just going to keep, you know, voting like we've always voted. We're going to read whatever the New York Times book review puts out as this is the hot new book. Yeah. We can just go along like this. Look at our Facebook feed, or we can say. This is what I'd like to read about. What's the best book on this subject mm -hmm. in this format? Um, well, how do you develop your taste? For well, it's not a taste. Things. It's of what I want to learn about. I mean, you know, you're saying why do why does Dad do what he does? Why do I do? Why do I care to get involved in this and make these works with Dad? And it's because what I think it is to be human is to think. That's the big greatest pleasure we could have. So why not, why, I'm directing it, what do I want to know about? Mm. And h how can I go and get that information? And in getting it, it will give me more insights to this. Just, you know, reading this book that you just got from Milan Kundera, all of a sudden I've got another book on my list of things I want to read about. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what's a great example of this kind of writing? Yeah, I definitely have a sensation that if I'm not actively trying to learn something or be better at something, uh, maybe it's because I'm afraid of sitting still and thinking alone in my Well, there's a, a lot to be done with just thinking alone, too, you know, that's... But I mean, the idea that you're constantly updating your software system with new information is really important, I think, because if you, you stop and you, you just feel kind of stagnant, if I'm not constantly adding new information to my... Self, I don't. I feel yeah, but stuck. I'm, I'm saying this. I, you know, I really am curating it. You know, when I was writing that time yeah. travel novel, 
and the character was going back to 1919, for two years I read nothing writ written after 1919. Mm. I just did that on purpose, and I went there to find women that were writing at that time, and which was hard. There's not a lot that was published then. Mm. You know, so what would give me more insight into that time period? What were people thinking? What were they reading? What were the, the common ideas of the time? Um, yeah, that's a tough thing, to try and write authentically of the past in a timeline in the past when you know too much of the future is a hard... Well, yeah, and then so you, you, you've got to make these choices. What's going to give you this information? Mm. I, you know, I'm, at the same time, I'm listening to philosophers talk about um, you know, the time-space continuum. Well, yeah. And that, that Australian guy, Hugh, spelled H-U-A-W or something, Hugh, that is a, a time physicist, that, I mean, he's just, his ideas just blew me away. Yeah. And that, yeah, and I was, you start thinking about, oh my God, well, how am I going to, I'm not writing this typical tri time travel novel, even though Dad kept saying, because we're writing this together, of course. He's involved in what I'm doing. I'm involved in what he's doing. So he goes, the time machine, it has to be steampunk. You know, it has to be brass and, you know, what the knobs of this. So. Well, an attention to detail like that is really what makes things great. Well, yeah. And the fun of where this time machine is sitting in mm. our city, it's a, it's a, that the something... time machine is a character in the book. Yeah. And everybody goes, oh, you I hate that time travel. I just, I'm turning off when I get the book. You know, when I start to read this, because I don't want to read about science fiction. Well, it's not science fiction at all. It's a totally Milan Kundera literary novel. No one's going to want to read it because it's too. I'm. It's what I've written is way too highbrow literary, but it's got this silly steampunk time machine in it. Well, what's your intention? So, if you say that no one's going to read it because of the highbrow literariness of it, what's the point of that? Is it because you want to appear to be highbrow and and Literary, because if your point is communication, then why aren't you making well, writing right. in a way that's yeah. going to be communicated? The point of writing that novel, so it's the third one I've started, and the point of writing it, Dad and I were going to do it together, just figure out how to write the Stephen King, you know, the bestseller novel, so we could buy the villa in France, right? Just write this novel. So <laughs> you wrote something with the intention of making money off of it. We, we kind of laughing. You guys sold. <laughs> it didn't last. <laughs> So we started it. Sold this. out. Yeah, we're thinking about this. You could have asked McDonald's if they wanted to sponsor. That's right. We, we, we worked, <laughs> but we didn't want to spend much time in the marketing. We were just going to get the thing written and figure out how to do it. And You're um, trying to make a viral video, pretty much. Yeah, it was that kind of thing. We're going to make a viral video and <laughs> it's going to happen. So, so I even go to the, you know, to workshop this book. And the, and I said, you know, it's a sci-fi. And the the teacher, after reading several, you know, the classes over, and he goes, you're not fooling anybody. It's a literary novel. That's where they're going to stick it in the bookstore. It's not going to go in the science fiction. That's yeah. just not how you write. Well, and that's a tough thing. Like, I like to think about the idea of inputs coming into your brain in the same way that, like, food goes into your brain. You know, like, or, sorry, food goes into your body. Like, if I eat a cheeseburger every day for three weeks, my body's going to reflect that I've eaten a cheeseburger for, every day for three weeks. It's an inescapable fact. The inputs going into me are going to come out in, yeah, in their nature. I am what I read. Yeah, so you are what you read, and that makes sense to me that you'd be really struggling to write anything other than what you're writing. But I think that um, there's value and and this is 
the whole argument about like a Joe Rogan podcast is there's absolutely value in taking really interesting people, really smart people, really valuable, crazy people that are hard to digest because they're so specialized in what they do and putting it out to a public forum where a bunch of people can try to access that information. So you, if you have the ability to write something and express an idea, there's nothing wrong with trying to express it as clearly and as easily accessible as possible, unless you're on purpose trying to make it obscure. Well, right, and I'm not trying to make it obscure. It's just going to have this... Um, uh, it's going to have an aesthetic goal. Mm. I'm not writing a novel just to, uh, you know, Terry Talty's memoirs. It is... Well, we're not, and we're, we're not, you know, making stuff just to decorate a wall. That's right. It, the Absolutely. Whole, yeah, yeah, the whole purpose is, is an aesthetic uh, accomplishment that is the same as what Rothko did. That, that people can see this aesthetic attempt and it will give them that, oh, wow, Give them an experience. Okay. Yeah, so the, what do you think the difference is between trying to create something that goes on a wall and something that isn't that? Um, and like... The, well, the experience of doing it, I mean, the thing, in reality, if you make something that's flat and can hang, it, you're making something for a wall. And like you're talking about taking things out of context, so if you just take one piece of mine or anybody's and put it on a wall... Um, then you've got you've you've got that piece like the Mocheni painting we have on the wall in here. It's you know by itself it's just a painting on the wall. A painting on the wall. You know, there's not much context to it, but that we understand about what this his work is and what the other works look like. Um, yeah, because we know him. But you know, like this painting of yours that's hanging behind us. It's the only one of the only paintings of your dad hanging in the house because we didn't want to feel like we were in this Gertrude Stein's memorial to Stuart Bremner. Um, but this aesthetic project he was on at this time when he was doing this was the difference between two-dimensional things and sculpture because he'd mostly been making sculpture. Mm -hmm. And so now he's trying to do painting and the painting is about sculpture. So it's, it's really about the content that's in here, not that somebody, or it even looks good in our house. Well, you guys would call yourselves conceptual artists, yeah? Well, I definitely am, because I, I don't like to get my hands too dirty. <laughs> you like to have thoughts. <laughs> well, we do. I mean, we, I mean, we, you know, try to add something, which I guess is changes it from a decoration. You know, we go to lots of museums, we go to some galleries, but we don't very often like go down the the painting aisle at Target and yeah. peruse things much. Well, what's the difference between those? The goodwill I do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I, I and I'm asking this question because it is obvious that there's a difference between a painting that's you know been handcrafted and made and put up on a wall versus something that you purchased that's been mass produced at Kmart, but. I mean, for somebody that may, like, these kind of paintings are out of their price range so that mostly they want something that decorates their wall and they go to Kmart and get it. There's nothing necessarily wrong with doing that, but do you think that they're missing out on a very important aspect of what artwork can be? 
Um, I think you have to embrace it. I, I don't know that... I mean, you've got to put out the effort. If, if it, it takes work to, to look at a lot of work and try to understand, you know, the work that you're seeing today, even to, to go back and understand work that was done in the 40s or 50s or, you know, 100 years ago or whatever, um, it, it takes some effort to engage a lot of things. You know, you can mm -hmm. certainly, I mean, that's the appeal of um, pictorial, you know, landscapes or realist realism is that it's, you can identify with it quickly. Yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah. And you can appreciate that it took work to make something so perfectly realistic. Right. I guess. You know, like, because I think there there is this new, it's definitely a new wave of artwork that I've seen a lot of on Instagram where people are creating hyper-realist paintings, that they're paintings and they take a lot of time, but they look exactly like a photograph. Right. So, and unless you get in front of it, you don't get to learn whether it, it does more than a photograph or more than a painting mm -hmm. or what it, you know, well, in the presence of it. Yeah. Obviously, it'll photograph really well and look good on a three-inch screen. Mm-hmm. But it may not look any different than the photograph. That's small. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, you've been in, in places where you just, the artwork is, is just like wall-to-wall -wall carpeting. It just doesn't feel like any, it's not noticeable. But, you know, I well, mean... I, you know, I like walking through a, a, an art fair. Yeah, it's like that. Yeah. It's is like that. It's just kind of like, uh, I don't know. It's constructed purely to be purchased. Do you think yeah. is that maybe the difference? Well, and and based on trends of what people are buying today, like, mm -hmm. um, you, you know, these black and white drawings of your dad's aren't going to sell. I mean, you tried to sell these old, framed black and white stuff that you got from your mom's house. Here's a collection of twelve pieces that all go together, and we thought, oh well, somebody might want that. But we even gave one to your aunt, and she just goes, I don't even like it. I want color. You know, people. That's what people want now. They want a Rothko, um, and so people are making that stuff for them, and mm -hmm. that's that's fine. But that's not what your aesthetic project is. You're trying to do something that's talking about how do you, you see things. Yeah. Do you feel successful as an artist? Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing it for a long time, and I keep doing it, and I enjoy doing it. So. Are you getting That's better great. at it? I mean, this. Well, I do think I'm getting. I mean, certainly just from drawing, my drawing's getting better. And, you know, I. And I have. Yeah, I'm better at putting things together. I know a lot more about scale, about, you know, constructing things. You know, I constantly try to but, get better. But it's better not at just the craft, it's these ideas, these newer drawings are. Yeah, but it's you, a vocabulary, you know, I'm just more confident that I can. Um, you know, make a, the correct decision in putting these two weight of things together, you know, so that they look good together, or, or whatever, the thickness of a line, the strength of a line drawing. When, um, you were saying when we were inside the Cliffords, though, that you're looking to try and create something that contains kind of a timeless essentialness to it, or you're trying to capture... Do you remember kind of what you were talking about? Hmm. Like, your, your new idea of what you really want to accomplish in the next few years of creating art is that you want to create something that has 
it captures its essence. Well, right, and like the the objects in Dad's current drawings are sticks and rocks, string. So it's universal. Everybody can relate to this. It is um, graspable. So when people go, oh, I just don't get it. There's nothing in there. No, no. It's this is a realistic drawing. But these things have no meaning. They're so um, everyday. They're so ordinary that they are just uh, some uh, and a, um, you know a symbol of spay of, um, of scale of, of size of, ten of tension of physical properties. And would you say that they? So it's not like oh that's a horse that's a painting of a dog that's a cat painting. Yeah. It's not that. But the strength of the individual items in each drawing is their relationship to each other. That the rock counterbalances the stick. Right, and that's that's the story that's, I mean, I guess if there's a story, that's being told about the physicalness of the drawing is that, that this is a supposed setup, and you could look at it and go, you know, I don't think it would really, that would work. <laughs> yeah. You know, one could argue with it, but it's, since it's a drawing, it, you can make it work. Mm. Um, well, so I guess, I mean, kind of back to what I was asking, I don't know, like, well, saying, do you feel like you're successful as an artist, and you say, yes, that you feel like over time you've learned your craft well, and obviously you've been doing it for so long, you definitely have, and you're getting better, and I, it's almost, uh, the cool thing about it, I was saying the cool thing about Katie being a scientist also, is that you can never really do science perfectly. You oh. are always, forever, going to be needing to be better at it. And making artwork, there's never an end to how good you're going to get at it. Do you know, like, you can infinitely get better at expressing these ideas and learning, you know, honing your craft. It's infinite. Right. And, and I guess I keep... As far as the craft part of it goes, I'm more interested in... Um, coming up with more concepts and designing more problems to solve. Mm. And if I need to learn something different, you know, I wouldn't mind having some, you know, interactive parts of, of stuff, you know, things mm. that are triggered when you get in the presence of something or things that, you know, I mean, there, there's some interest in that to me. But, um, so anyway, there's a lot of things one could <laughs> learn. <laughs> yeah, sure, but, but... You're trying to take it to the tack away from craft and more about the, the concept, the thought behind right. it. Right. And are I am kind of simplifying it. things. And I mean, I am kind of, and I just mentioned electronic stuff, but in general, <laughs> I am trying to, 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 certainly in this kind of group of drawings and in the, you know, in these, the metal pieces up here, I'm sort of stripping away as much as I can and trying to get, like you were saying a minute ago, to the essence of. Yes. Of, um, of that piece, you know, the essence of a piece of paper arranged the way it's been arranged, or the essence of this little arrangement of, of things, this imaginary arrangement. Well, how do you, do you think you'll be able to tell if you're successful at getting to the essence of something? Or do you think you ever have done in the past? Yeah, yeah, a lot of things yeah. do, but, but, you know, it, it does take the effort to look at something, so you know, since in our house there's all this stuff and we walk by it all the time, it, uh, you're not having a relationship with this 
stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you go first buy your car, you you know you relate to the car. You made this decision. You look at it, and then after a while, you're just driving this car. Yeah, you just and you don't and notice it, that the glove box doesn't work anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, and a lot of times, do you get the sensation of like? I know you talked about the use the term overworked, and I've done that a bunch before. Like sometimes you get to working on something so much, and you get so deep inside it that you can't actually see it anymore, and you can't really tell if the decisions you're going to make are going to be the right decisions, and you have to really zoom out and walk away from it. Yeah, a lot of times I put stuff away because yeah. if I if I'm at a place where everything's looking good and everything's all right, and then I start to do something and I'm not. I don't like it, then I put it away. And often I'll pull it out and just go, right, what was I thinking? Or I'll pull it out and then go, oh yeah, this will work. And mm-hmm. just finish yeah. it up. And I even uh, sketch my sketchbook that way a little bit, where sometimes I'll, I'll draw lots of lines. And then, so I'll maybe do five pages of just different lines in relation to each other and then come back and uh, try to either turn them into something make them into forms or make them into little objects or whatever. Mm. Yeah, it's weird how that works. That, you know, sometimes you can just start drawing something and know straight away that it just is not working. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that is. and I, I don't know how... Well, sometimes it, you can't make it better. You yes. can't force it. You know, even coming back, it's almost like, yeah, it's just wasted effort. I might as well just turn the paper over and start again. Yeah. But, you know, some of the really successful pieces, the Moving Rockfield is a really successful piece. And, you know, the piece in Frisco mm-hmm. that is just, what, 100, 120 steel poles with a rock on the top of it, kind of at human and a little bit taller than human height. And in order to really see that piece, you have to stop. Because it's called moving Rockfield. Mm-hmm. But the things don't move. They're not, like, swaying in the breeze. If you just drive by it, they look like they're still. Mm-hmm. But if you're still, they are always moving. Something's moving in there. Mm-hmm. And anyone that you put your focus on is probably moving. And each one is a unique thing. Each one is a unique rock, so you can really identify the one you're seeing. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing it move. But if, if you don't give it that time, you've seen nothing, really. Mm-hmm. So would you say that, um, I mean, it, as an artist or as a person that you get more out of life if you take time to slowly pay attention to things. Well, yeah, and choosing the right things to see. You know, what makes a, them right? Well, you can only do your best guess, but you have a goal of where you're going. And um, there's going to be work that may be really great, but we're just going to miss it because it doesn't fit in. Doesn't, it doesn't help me get to where I'm going, what I want to see, and what I need to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so your experience of your reality is filtered by your own intentions at that point in time. Yeah, it is, because you may, you'll make the effort to go see a show somewhere, or you won't make the effort. Mm-hmm. You know. Isn't that funny? Like When you actually kind of pay attention to what you're doing, everything... Everything we do is always about me, my experience, my... That's all you can't do, because that's all you are, is me. Um, uh, When you're curating this goal of your life, Mm -hmm. you can't... You know, of course, you know, know, I want to show you this. You're here, you're only here for a little while, we want to show you this and this. 
So there's people that are influencing you, but we're trying not to just drift in the breeze and mm. just, you know, turn on Fox News and that's all we ever listen to. Why, um, why is it important not to drift, do you think? Like, why is it, and what are you tethering yourself to? Well, I think it's will. You know, it's, it's, it's free will. I'm trying to assert my free will be this person. It's, you know, sometimes you say the authentic self, but that's a construct. It's a build. Mm. Well, it feels in the same way that, like, when I see a, a piece of artwork that I feel like kind of nailed it, it, or probably what you experienced when you looked at the Rothko thing, you got an emotional response that you really can't articulate. There's nothing um, physically different about that thing except for that it gave you this emotional response. And I think... There's something about the authentic self, the authentic version of you, that feels different than when you're trying to be impressive, you're trying to be someone, you're trying to put on a front or whatever. I, I have a tangible, tangible different feeling when I'm kind of on that track or when I'm creating artwork from that place. or I'm But it is, you know, building the better self. It's not, um, uh, I have my special purpose and I have to find it. It's it's. Well, but when, I think when you when you're going to look at art, if you if you go into a, a a show. And you're open, and and your mind is open to responding to what you're seeing, you'll get a different um, reaction than if you feel like you don't want to be there or yeah. today's the wrong day to come in to do this but do you, you know because of whatever else is going on in your life you have to be open you have you yeah. have to respond to the work and if you're not in a good place to respond to the work you know you could go see a show and come see it again and it could have a different experience yeah. For you. Oh, yeah. yeah and there's a fine balance between you know directing choosing having free will and being open to whatever might come to you and you've got to do both of those yeah, do you think yeah. that that's a skill that you can develop to be able to say if you have a day, you're in Dallas, you're only in Dallas for three days, and today's the day you've decided to go to the art gallery and you're not feeling that way. Do you think that there's a skill that you can develop to put yourself in that open frame of mind that you are prepared, that sure. you, so you can get Sure, it's just like it. meditating or anything else. Yeah. You know, it's just, you know, because you have to kind of go through a process. You, when you walk in, mm. I'm ready for what it's going to show me. And I guess there's some familiarity. You know, it's nice to go to galleries or museums again and again mm. and see different things there because there is a familiarity you know where the elevator is you know where the <laughs> restrooms are or whatever yeah, yeah. well and also you don't set yourself up for failure if we're in Paris we try to see one major thing and get plenty of walking and, and other right. stuff in on that day we try we hardly ever go to two things in a day mm. yeah it's just too much even here you know we went to Clifford Still and we went over to Kirkland and it was kind of it was a lot yeah and especially that Kirkland is a lot to take in because there's a yeah. bunch of shit in there yeah but I thought that was really interesting I think that a whole bunch of very fine things in there yeah very there fine there are a things. lot of things that are everyday uh, decorative arts that it's and it, that's jam packed with it yeah it's why are your paintings not in that museum yet it's all Colorado artists right yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't I haven't really shown any two-dimensional work. This piece was in a group show once, 
with that, like, how do you get your artwork into the Kirkland Museum? Do you just have to tell Well, him? he said to me, uh, hey, don't you think they'd like this sculpture, whatever? What sculpture was it you were going to give them? Oh, I thought one of the, the steel drawings would be good on the wall at the old... At the old museum, yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, Terry, would you get on that? <laughs> well, you are the PR about? person. Um, because, and I, I talk about this a lot, and I think this will be sort of interesting for people listening that know me in Australia that have never met you guys, because in uh, 11 years of me living there, you've never been there, which you will next year hopefully come. But they, um, I, am ex- I am a really weird mix of the two of you. In, it's actually a confusing mix. It's like I'm uh, Play-Doh, like two different colors of Play-Doh that have been put together. And instead of it being a red and blue Play-Doh that made purple, I am very red and very blue. Like mom's extroversion and your ability to talk and interact and be, you know, be seen and be on stage versus dad's introversion in his quietness. I am a, a weird mix of both of them. I don't get half of each. I've got like moments where I can be you and moments where I can be him. Hmm. So this is why I think that you guys make a really good team and why I'm such a fucking mess. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think what we do together is just an example of the best self you're going to be. But. Yeah, what you do together, if I can reconcile these two weird opposing ends in the inside. You know, you, uh, the amount of time that you have nagged us for being bickerers. Don't do that. Don't touch me like that. Stop that. I know, it's what terrifying. Do you, what, you, uh, what, say something condescending in your condescending way. I've never said anything <laughs> he can't condescending. Do it. He cannot do it on, on, he knows he's being recorded, he can't be his asshole, so. <laughs> well, none of us are. never. I'm always trying to be my best version of myself on the podcast. He's way more guarded than I am, yeah. I can, I'm giving you the asshole model. <laughs> um... Well, I think that's terrifying. The good thing about seeing you guys is that you still love each other after. How many years have you been together? Uh, Just yesterday. (laughs) Since you were 19 and you are 62. 62. So it's a long time, yeah. But you remember that time when you graduated from high school, you were off at college, and we decided to move to France and pretend like we just met because we were in such a bickery state. Really? We physically said this to one another. Let's pretend like we just met. Wow. And well, we were going through a lot. We just sold the house. We were just... Our know. daughter, our youngest child, just left the nest. Man, she was we're an going asshole to. at the time, too. Well, she was better. You were worse. I was worse when I still lived with you. I you suppose. were worse when you were, like, maybe 15 was the peak of worseness. Ugh, yeah. But um, we were just, you know, you talked out of the parking lot. <laughs> It yeah, totally that sharpness, it is. Sharpness, it's scary. Would you have said that if you'd just met me? That, that, <laughs> is that what you said? <laughs> oh, that's an interesting way of doing so it, So if one of us caught the other one, just would you have said that if we'd just met? <laughs> and we'd apologize. That is an amazing little trick for the longevity of a relationship. It really did work. That's amazing. Yeah, because it lasted yeah. a week. <laughs> it lasted a good year. And remember, you were saying in France, I could live like this forever, just you and me. We never see anyone else. We don't know anybody else. We don't have any friends. And we would don't you say that again like now? <laughs> yeah, I loved it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I mean, I'm very impressed by what you guys do. And I do, I think it's my duty as the external person that knows you well to come and just point out things that maybe seem 
normal to you guys that, you know, just like with anything, if you get caught in a momentum and you get, you're so used to your own surroundings that you just do these things over and over and over yeah. again and you don't even realize that they're happening. Yeah, and I don't think it was the muttering and the nagging each other, that whole <laughs> kind of thing. That's why we did, did that. So now we can say, would Lorna mention that? <laughs> would Lorna would call Lorna us out that? on our page? <laughs> yeah, would Lorna have noticed it? <laughs> yeah, so you can just pretend like I'm always here. If it helps, you can record your conversations and send them to me. Oh, and then I'll well, We could just modify an Alexa, you know, those the, the things you can talk to. <laughs> What's an Alexa? You know, it's like the Alexa. Google thing. Yeah. Oh, Google. God, Google. yeah, Google's Google. Google would modify it so that it's... <laughs> It just goes to your phone. <laughs> no, and then no. it'll glow red or See, green, can, depending on your reaction. You can just have Lorna program me, Alexa, so it says, Mom, that was really not a very nice way to speak to Dad. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, we've been talking for a while now, so I'll probably um, let us get back to our lives on my last day in the United States of America. Well, last day in Denver. Isn't that sad? Yeah. This happened too quickly. I know. Too we've done a lot, though. I know, we definitely have. And hopefully I'll be back here at Christmas so we'll be able to do it all over again. Um, but my question is, we've, what do you think is the ultimate key to keeping you guys happy together and yourselves happy independently and together over this 50 years you've been together? It's 40. It's only 40-something. All right, 40-something. Why do you do it? Why do you do it? Why do you say? I don't know. Um, well, well, I always say, too, that it's, I don't wake up tomorrow thinking that it's a given. Mm. I expect that he will make an effort that, to make my life and good and help me on my goal. And if he stops doing that, you know, I could just leave any time. Yeah, no, that's why I have to bring coffee. <laughs> <laughs> well, and vice sure versa. I mean, I'm good. hoping I'm doing that. That if I don't keep you going where you want to go and making it a pleasant thing. Yeah, we're both working on stuff together, trying to, you know, keep. That is somewhat why it's troubling where your mom's at, because now it's just she's got so nothing to give in so many ways. It's really. Ugh. Yeah, it's sad. It's sad. Yeah, growing old is a scary thing. So you'd say kind of like the potential of the unknown keeps you. Um, an alignment to a better version of Well, being open to, to the potential. Mm -hmm. Being open to whatever, yeah, potential. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, it is a goal, and I wouldn't even say it as, I mean, I, you hesitate, I hesitate to say specifically what that goal is, to specifically name the emotional expression in these Rothko paintings, because once you name them... Yes. Well, naming's different than experiencing. Yeah. Yes, yeah. You know, it, it's... It's different. It's not a visual experience. Right. Yeah, when you put an arbitrary sound on top of a thing that is hard to describe. We use arbitrary sounds to communicate a thing that's pretty impossible to communicate. That's what language is, really. But the, the sound doesn't have any relation to the experience except for the fact that we've commonly accepted that we use that word to describe that thing. Right, and we're trying to... Right, yeah, that's yeah. the way we communicate. And yeah. make more ways to understand things. You know, like this curator putting the show together at the whatever museum it is. Their job is to try to communicate better. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's going to probably, you know, possibly provide emotional experiences, aesthetic experiences, and education. 
to people. And the better job that each of the people involved in this putting this thing together do, the more it might communicate. Yeah, mm -hmm. communicate and enrich, renew, improve, progress the human race. And so you think that in having this mentality about the way that you experience your external lives, irrespective of your relationship with each other, has helped you both um, be more connected to each other also? Well, we're both kind of on that that journey, you know, that exploration, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I, I'd be hard-pressed to spend this much time with somebody that's main goal was watching football. Yeah. But I might have somebody else's name on my shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and I would find that attractive. <laughs> Wow, it was really nice talking to you guys, and um, well, we'll do it again another time, and hopefully yeah. six to eight months time. Yeah, soon, please. Cool. Um, I'll put a link to your website, but it's stuartbremner.com is where your artwork is, yep. and you've got... Talty.org. <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> unsafe art. It's unsafe art. Unsafe art is something we are really kind of doing together. Okay. Video and pictures, photographs, and text about, about our art that we see. Yeah, cool. Okay, we'll have those links on there. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you.